quote, in my bag here, I have a foolproof method for controlling your black slaves. I guarantee every one of you that, if installed correctly, it will control the slaves for at least 300 years. My method is simple. Any member of your family or your overseer can use it. I have outlined a number of differences among the slaves, and I take these differences and make them bigger. I use fear, distrust, and envy for control purposes. These methods have worked on my modest plantation in the West Indies and it will work throughout the South. Take this simple little list of differences and think about them. On top of my list is age. The second is color or shade. There's intelligence, size, sex, sizes of plantation, status on plantations, and attitude of owners, whether the slaves live in the valley, on the hill, east, west, north, south, have fine hair, coarse hair, or are tall or short. Now that you have a list of differences, I shall give you an outline of action. But before that, I shall assure you that distrust is stronger than trust, and envy stronger than adulation, respect, or admiration. The black slaves, after receiving this indoctrination, shall carry on and will become self-refueling and self-generating for hundreds of years, maybe thousands. Don't forget, you must pitch the old black male versus the young black male and the young black male against the old black male. You must use the dark-skinned slaves versus the light-skinned slaves, and the light-skinned slaves versus the dark-skinned slaves. You must use the female versus the male, and the male versus the female. You must also have white servants and overseers who distrust all blacks. But it is necessary that your slaves trust and depend on us. They must love, respect, and truly trust only us. Gentlemen, these kits are your keys to control. Use them. Have your wives and children use them. Never miss an opportunity. If used intensely for one year, the slaves themselves will remain perpetually distrustful. Thank you, gentlemen. Willie Lynch, 1712. What Lynch and his fellow slave owners left behind was 300 years of psychological, physical, and financial oppression. Financial oppression that was made explicit the day before he was assassinated when Martin Luther King asked fellow African Americans to take their money and put it into black banks to build a greater economic base. My guest today, John Logan, is heeding that call, having co-founded Bank Black USA, where he seeks to help fulfill Dr. King's mission. John believes Bitcoin is a means to help achieve that goal. My hope is that the conversation with John gives you a better understanding of the century's worth of financial oppression that black America has faced and how Bitcoin may help change that. As always, thank you so much for listening. People, you know, they talk about the sovereignty piece, they talk about all these things, but then you can't talk about the freedom that Bitcoin provides without talking about the lack of freedom that has not been provided to so many for so long and how Bitcoin can empower those folks, the unbanked, the underbanked, and the people around the globe. You, I mean, you cannot not get excited about that once you understand the full gravity of what's been put in place as far as barriers to, to, to so many through these policies that we're talking about here today. So very exciting stuff, this, this, this new innovative technology that we know is Bitcoin. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. All right, John Logan, thank you so much for joining me on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. Real pleasure to be here. You're doing great work, Mark. And uh, certainly it's, um, we're going to have a good time today. Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Well, I know I speak on behalf of many people and that we value your contributions to the Bitcoin space. So thank you for being here. Yes, sir. Thanks. Please tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, both personally and professionally. My name is Jonathan Logan. And um, by way of profession, I've got over 20 years in the fire service here in uh, New York City. And yeah, um, a little bit about the nonprofit work that I've been doing over the last, I say, five plus years. The not-for-profit Cowrie, which stands for Cooperative Wealth Reinvestment and Empowerment. Uh, one of the first initiatives was uh, Bank Black USA. I know we'll probably talk a little bit more about that a little bit later. I'm just someone who uh, wants to do some good advocacy. I care about people deeply. It's probably because of my upbringing in the church, and um, I just just can't wait to dive into some of the some of the stuff you got prepared here today, man. Yeah, well, well let's do it. Talking about uh, your project with Bank Black USA is the primary reason uh, I brought you on the show. So let's get right into it. Tell us more about Bank Black USA, how it started, its mission. Sure. So basically, Bank Black USA, it builds on a, a, a larger Bank Black movement that started about probably back in 2016, right after a series of very violent police shootings in the Black community, um, unarmed Black men. And so... At that time, there was a um, very well-known entertainer, Killer Mike, who became like the unofficial official spokesperson for this bank black movement. And so we, we noticed people wanting to do something, people wanting to really do something meaningful as far as how to respond to this. And so me and a couple of the co-founders, we met very organically online and uh, all of us, of course, very concerned about what was going on. And uh, me being one who was always very passionate about my consumer dollar, uh, how it's spent, and not wanting anyone's hands in my pockets, if you will, I always tried to leverage my money. And so me and some and the co-founders uh, started talking online about what could we do. And so we started digging and looking and looking. And really, Bank Black builds on not only a Bank Black movement that started or reoccurred or resurged in 2016, it really was a clarion call from Dr. King himself on April 3rd, 1968. April 3rd, 1968, Dr. King was down in Tennessee speaking with the sanitation union workers down there, um, helping them motivate and, and do some advocacy work there. In that last speech, he called for the folks to move their money out of the downtown bank and into Tri-State Bank, which was one of the Black-owned banks down there. And uh, Tri-State is now uh, Liberty Bank and Trust. and that was a clarion call for people to exercise their power of choice of their consumer dollars and to move uh, their money. And that is essential to exercise their power to say, hey, my money means something. It supports everything that the economy uh, is made of. And I have a choice on where to put it. And so the black owned banks have always been essential for African-Americans, Africans, descendants of slaves to be a part of an economic, a very exclusionary economic system. And so um, that was a very important clarion call. April 4th, the very next day, Dr. King was assassinated down in Tennessee. So that was a very important call. And it's still an important call today for people to be conscious of how they're using their money, their consumer dollars, to be good stewards of their money, 
and also to be conscious of the institutions, the economic institutions in which they're putting their money in and the financial fitness of those institutions and how they are serving the local communities in where they're located. And um, we could talk more about the obligations of those uh, institutions, minority depository institutions and uh, their responsibilities to the local communities, um, many of which the uh, larger big banks are failing. They're failing their report card, if you will, and their obligations to the local community. So that's kind of how we started. And again, our website uh, sees an uptick anytime there's something going on, something violent, something goes on. Uh, we see an uptick in the back end in the metrics of our site. People want to do something and um, we're trying to give them something to do, something active and practical, nonviolent and peaceful to do. So that's that's pretty much it. So it's only fitting that we get into some history yeah. uh, given the month. So I'm hoping you can tell us uh, some of the important milestones in black banking since the development of the first one. Yeah, so I would say some of the milestones are basically everyday milestones, uh, helping people, an excluded group, to reach basic milestones. And so some of the milestones, of course, have been you know, federal policy, like uh, certificates that banks could get, like one could get a minority depository institution certificate, if you will. And that that brings in funding to that institution. Why does that even exist? It exists because we realize over time that just by virtue of needing a, a Black-owned bank, there's some differences going on. There's, there, there's some unequal playing fields that have gone on. And so Black banks have surged and kind of fallen, and there's ups and downs. We started uh, back in 2016 there were much uh, more Black-owned banks than there are now, even today. And so there have been some milestones with helping people be included in the economic system, help people to obtain loans uh, for businesses, for home ownership. But for the most part, Black-owned banks are on the, the decline. And it's unfortunate. And it's unfortunate for many reasons, because unfortunately, the banking system is, is not equal. All things are not created equal. Money lending is not created equal. Homeownership, uh, the ability to do so is not created equal. It's not offered. It's not equal opportunity for everyone, contrary to, I guess, mainstream thought. Um, so there's been some milestones, but I, I, I would say what's going on right now is that there's a decline of Black-owned banks, acquisitions, larger banks taking over, uh, smaller ones. But um, yeah, the need for an institution that helps folks obtain uh, the basics the basic American dream, if you will, is essential. And so uh, people have to know about their options and exercise their options. So uh, I think it's important. I think it's critical for people to understand. So getting a bit more granular on that, yeah. why is there a need for Black banks? Why is uh, the need for it not been fixed by other means? That's a, a somewhat of a loaded, a loaded question. It could, it, you know, we could branch off and talk about so much when it comes to that. There's a need because we know that there's a lot of ugliness that have, of course, gone on uh, with the history here in the, in the United States and, and around the globe. You know, we can get into some of the uh, unfair lending practices. We can get into so many of the, uh, the, the ugliness of our history. And when I talk about the ugliness of our history, I, I think it's important for people to understand the history, the ugliness, to recognize, to commit to that process of understanding that, those truths. And so that they can uh, get to a point of reconciliation. Well, I think we should get into those details. Sorry to interrupt, because no, I think no, there's fine. sometimes a, a misconception within communities where if a if a different community wants to start their own 
institution, company, organization, movement in any capacity, there's this automatic question of why do you need to do that? Why do you need to have your own thing? And so I think understanding the historical importance of black banking is, is paramount here. So I appreciate your, your input on this. It is paramount. And, and just so you know, and that's a good point that you bring up, that banking black is not something that happens in a vacuum. Like all cultures do it. If you go to any neighborhood, you'll see banks that are, are, are laser beam focused on whatever demographic is there. So um, this is not something that is new um, as far as practicing. You know, uh, groups, cultures have come together and said, we want to be able to go into an institution that is familiar with our lifestyles, which is familiar with our, our, our culture, is familiar with the needs of the people. And so uh, Black banks uh, have a, a particular interest in serving a particular demographic with particular set of problems, of challenges. And so we could talk about those. But I think for the most part, if we understand history, and history is so broad, and it's unfortunate that the, the education system here has really done a poor job in dealing with those truths. So um, it, this podcast, Mark, would be uh, it would be a lot more <laughs> uh, than, than than we could cover if we got into that. But you know, black banks are essential to helping folks become included, helping folks buy homes. I could talk about the federal uh, housing authority um, not providing folks with federally uh, insured home loans and how that affects the African-American uh, in, in comparison to other groups. Uh, just a quick reference here. This is a book written by Mr. Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law. And it explains exactly what I'm talking about because we know some history, right? We know that people were treated unfairly, but sometimes we don't understand the legacy effects of that. We don't understand how the legacy of slavery, how the legacy of segregation, how the legacy of Jim Crow, how that plays out to right now. And so, you know, earlier we talked about Dr. King being assassinated in 1968. You know, I was born in 1978. So what does that mean? You know, how many things have really changed over that period of time within a 50-year time span? Not much. And so let's just talk about getting a home loan that's federally insured as opposed to a different loan product that's not. Okay, so let's talk about equity. When you own a home, of course, and these, these are basic concepts for some, not for all, because there are certain people today that still struggle and generationally not even owning their own home. And we know that home ownership, single family home ownership has always been a direct line to generational wealth. And so one could get a federally insured home loan. And over the course of time, one could build equity in that home. And then, of course, borrowing against that equity to, uh, to hedge against economic downturns, to send your kids to school, um, all these things, or to bequeath that wealth on to your uh, family when you pass is, is always, that's like, that's a basic thing for some home owners. That's a basic thing for some families. If you don't have a federally insured home loan and you're dealing with some high interest rate, you may never acquire any equity in your home. And so what does that translate to? It translates to generations of individuals who never own anything, who never have been included, never established a, a sound economic base. And so um, when people say things like, oh, well, uh, my family came here from wherever place and we worked hard and got what we did and we got that, we forget the legacy effects of what has been forced on certain groups and not on others. The starting line being different for certain groups, mainly, and I'm talking about African-Americans, unapologetically talking about the strife 
uh, an oppression of the African, the African-American and the, and the descendant of the slave. This is a, a huge a setback. So we must deal with that, commit to the process of truth, understanding that, and then deal with the legacy effects going forward. Because if one cannot establish an economic base, you, you, you don't have anything. We're talking about ownership of property, uh, being able to store value has been offered to many, 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 many groups. And uh, I, I'll end the thought process on this. In 1860s, uh, millions of acres of land was being given to the European settler, the, the European immigrant. But uh, on the contrary, nothing was given to the African who had been here for 244 years and had been brought here involuntarily. And uh, nothing was given to them to establish an economic base. And so what is the legacy effects of that? You know, what does that translate to over time? That difference in starting point, I would, I would argue to say, and I would welcome any, any healthy, respectful discourse to try to go through that thought experiment to get to a point where you can have an aha moment and finally see. And so that's why I appreciate discussions like this, because, you know, we can get somewhere with people who desire to want to have these conversations to help educate people. So um, hopefully that broke down a little bit. But um, there's so much more, Mark. There's so much more we can go with that. I want you to continue with that thought process. And I'm going to tee you up here with a quote from Booker T. Washington, who said that owning a home and having a bank account would allow for a Black person the, quote, enjoyment of all his rights. So do you believe that financial stability, the accumulation of wealth, is the foundation by which the Black community can obtain all his rights? Sure. That freedom that that Washington is referring to here, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, Booker T. of course is is quoted time and time again, and his thought processes, his ideologies, and his philosophies are are sound, uh, time tested and proven. But yeah, property ownership, being able to store value, I would agree. It's it's definitely a, a way to generational wealth. And if we don't even believe or agree with uh, Booker T., let's just look at other groups. How have they been storing wealth over time? What have they been doing? And so uh, it's been home ownership, property ownership, and it's been starting a business. And so we have to understand the laws that have been put into place here in the United States that have uh, excluded groups, have excluded the African, the descendant of slave. And what are the legacy effects of that? And so absolutely, property ownership is essential. It's, it's essential. Starting a business, being able to get access to the funds, uh, the support, the, everything that supports uh, someone, an entrepreneur who's going into business is essential. And we have to look at all the barriers that have put into place that have caused people to not to be able to enter in. And, you know, a lot of times people, people don't want to really deal with that because it's very difficult to take away someone's position or stake in the fact that they've worked hard. And when you break down those things, it's very uncomfortable for someone. It's uncomfortable for someone to believe that they had an advantage. And so I think a lot of times why people resist these thoughts is because they feel it's, it's a personal attack on them and their ability and their philosophies built around everyone being able to work hard. But I would say to that person who's so protective of their, essentially their privilege, protective of their thought processes that is surrounded around them working hard and their family legacy, which I totally respect, if they would just learn history, and I'm not here uh, trying to give it to them. I'm not the one that should be giving it to them. They, 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 they need to go to those same institutions that failed them in teaching them to find that out. If they would go there and learn, they would have a different train of thought. 
And I think that um, it's done by design, this, this change and switch in, of, of narrative of, of uh, how things came to be. And it, it really drives wedges of, of divisiveness in a real terrible way, a real nasty way. And so we have to do better at, at educating people. But property ownership is essential to generational wealth. We know it. Uh, even if we don't agree with Booker T, it's, it's, a, it's a strategy that's been used from the beginning of time. And so we have to allow for more people to have that if we want the economy to change and if we want people to really succeed in a real meaningful way. It's hard to pull yourself up by the bootstraps when you don't have the boots, right? You said it, Mark. That's it right there. I mean, uh, it's and it's a real cruel jest to suggest to someone that you should do such a thing when you don't have any boots. So many people by the millions, as far as Africans and descendants of slaves, have been left bootless. And uh, that's a really cruel jest. It's a mean thing to say. But unfortunately, um, people just don't know. And so uh, I would also add that we're not trying to remain in the past. I'm not getting people to be stuck in the past and to be angry and to have this chip on their shoulder. I'm calling for people to be educated, to be truly educated and to really commit to a process of truth and, and then uh, be emancipated from that and, and then and then reconcile. You know, uh, Brian Stevenson, uh, the Equal Justice Initiative, you know, everything on the issue of race and race relations has already been said. I, I say that time and time again. So nothing I'm saying here is new. But uh, he talks about dealing with the past, and we haven't really come to grips here, at least not in the United States, with the, the, the ugliness of our past. And you can go to other countries, you can go to South Africa, and you can't go anywhere without seeing um, the monuments that are paid to apartheid and, and understanding what that is. They've begun to grapple with that. You can't go anywhere in Germany without seeing people grapple and understand the effects of the Holocaust. But here in the United States, we're so resistant to understanding those truths and, and, the, and, the, and the legacy. So it, it's important. Right now, what we're trying to do and what you're doing, Mark, which is so critical and I appreciate, we're here educating people. We're not trying to force anything down people's throats. We're not trying to get people to be angry. We're not trying to get people to feel bad about what they've done. We just want to educate people and help them have a courageous conversation and see, wow, I didn't never saw that before. I never was taught that before. I need to rethink myself. I need to rethink my position. So um, hopefully we do that. What does it mean to not have boots in the first place? Well, I think it means nearly half of black households are either unbanked or underbanked, meaning they have to access alternative uh, financial services. Mm -hmm. So please describe some of those specific exclusionary policies that either you've experienced personally or the people that you work with experience personally. What you said right there is, is, is very critical. Personal experiences. And so policies are one thing. Policies are set in stone by these higher-ups, these executives. And a lot of people, Black and all other groups as well, people don't really understand what's going on at high levels. They don't know. A lot of people are not civically engaged. They're not politically uh, savvy. But what they do understand, they understand very well their lived experiences. They understand what it feels like to have their home uh, appraised and it appraised strangely for hundreds of thousands of dollars less than another home in a different area with different demographics. And th this is not the paranoia of my mind. This is highly documented stuff here. Just like how we say in Bitcoin, don't trust me, verify. So some of the exclusionary policies that we've talked about prior with um, the FHA and other systematic things, we, you know, we're talking about redlining. Redlining for sure was a federal policy. If you don't know anything about redlining, this podcast, this session here is way too brief in order to really talk about that in a, in a real meaningful way. But I, uh, uh, your listeners really need to 
do a deep dive on that. If you really want to understand economics and economic policy, you have to understand it in the full scope. And you have to understand what has happened, problems that have persisted for so long, for so many. And we have to really, uh, the, the, the listener, the, the, the Bitcoiner, progressive, conservative, left or right, wherever you find yourself on the spectrum, not only politically, but as far as in your philosophies, your value systems, whatever you identify with, you must understand of these policies that have been put in place that have failed so many for so long. So, you know, I, I could point to so many of, of redlining, you know, you know, we talked about the federal housing authority and, and policies put in place there to not uh, uh, allow uh, folks to really take part of um, the system. You know, you know, there was a guide. Let's just talk about the FHA just just real quick. Uh, 1935, there was a kind of like a underwriting manual that was put out. And I'm, I'm, I'm taking this all. A lot of this stuff uh, I learned day to day. Unfortunately, a lot of the uh, things that I came into my own knowledge that I wasn't given through the public school system, I learned in my adulthood. And so I, I'm learning every day, just like with Bitcoin. Uh, I'm learning every day more about economics. Um, and a lot that has affected e- economics. And so a lot of the uh, underwriting and the, the manuals that were put out by private real estate agents that were working in conjunction with the FHA, they were charged to stick to very strict social and racial you know, guidelines. And so those policies right there are set up for failure of certain groups uh, to exclude certain groups. And so one must do a deep dive to really grasp the magnitude, uh, the gravity of the things that have been put in place to set people behind. And once you understand that, I think you have a deeper love for Bitcoin, things like this new innovation, this new technology. You have a deeper appreciation for what it is, because a lot of the circles that I'm in, in in the Bitcoin space, Bitcoin Twitter, Bitcoin uh, Clubhouse, if you will, People, you know, they talk about the sovereignty piece. They talk about all these things. But then you can't talk about the freedom that Bitcoin provides without talking about the lack of freedom that has not been provided to so many for so long and how Bitcoin can empower those folks, the unbanked, the underbanked and the people around the globe. You can't get excited. I mean, you cannot not get excited about that once you understand the full gravity of what's been put in place as far as barriers to, to, to so many through these policies that we're talking about here today. So very exciting stuff, this, this, this new innovative technology that we know is Bitcoin. We'll get to that in just a little bit, but I want to discuss black banking here a couple more minutes. Sure. You had mentioned kind of the ebb and flow of black banks over time. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the number of black banks peaked uh, some 40, 50 years ago and have declined since then and plummeted during the 08 crash, correct? Yeah, it, it, it really has. And, um, you know, why that's happened, it's, you know, we could dig into that a little bit. Yes, that's my question then is what has been the biggest limiting factor uh, to the success of black banking? You know, a lot of these banks don't get the support that they need on, on uh, even scale from the Fed um, that other major banks do. And um, that's part of it. One quick uh, caveat I, I, I want to mention, uh, Bank Black USA, Cowrie Initiative, Bank Black USA, we have strived not to be a rubber stamp for Black banks. I just, I, I just need to make that clear. And I hope, hopefully the listeners will understand that. Um, we're not here shilling uh, banks, number one, or Black banks. We're here to provide information as to why a local bank, a Black-owned bank, may be a better option for the African-American. 
the African, the descendants of slaves, and why, and to build out um, some education as to why they exist, uh, why they are declining in their existence. And um, so that could be helpful so people can make better choices and have an alternative to the, um, the, the, the banking system as we know it today, because bank, black banks are, are laser beam focused on, on certain things and they understand the, the difficulties there. So I just wanted to preface what I was saying by saying that. But there are many reasons why there has been a decline. And I'll be honest with you, if you go to a lot of these Black-owned banks, a lot of, and I've had conversations, I've, I've hosted spaces, uh, Twitter spaces on this and, and other forums, a lot of times it's the either the aesthetic, the you go online uh, and, and you see, uh, you know, uh, how the, the bank looks, the upkeep of it and um, the, the upkeep of the website. And a lot of it is, is aesthetics because we know with everything, marketing and, and advertising is a thing and people will go and be attracted to something that's um, quote unquote sexy for them. Um, it looks good. It feels good. And we know when something looks good, feels good, um, you know, people, it usually performs well. Um, and so a lot of it is aesthetics, I, I, I think, um, from what I've seen. An unsolicited plug to the Bank Black USA website. It's phenomenal, by the way. Thank you very much. You know, we did a 14-week build out uh, uh, with a company by the name of Instrument. Um, it was like a retreat. Wonderful groups of people over at Instrument. Uh, quick shout out to them. Um, and uh, I've even been told, by the way, uh, hey, I would bank if this bank that is local to me, this black owned bank was local to me. If it looked like your website, uh, you know, I would probably go there. So right. thanks for uh, that acknowledgement. I appreciate that. But um, yeah, so the aesthetic of it is 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 one thing. The marketing in any industry is is important, and so the marketing aspect, the advertising, is something that people are drawn to. And so maybe the marketing budgeting for that is not there. Um, certainly, One United Bank, which is the largest black-owned bank in the U.S., um, uh, has probably more funding to do that. And maybe some of the listeners have heard of One United. So, is funding a big part of the lack of success? I would say funding is 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 part of it. Everything comes down to funding. I right. mean, Mark, you know, everything comes down to economics, funding, and how they add, you know budget their resources to uh, have a presence. And so, and also, this is the point, the the, the critical thing. Um, a, a lot of it is the stigma that's put on blackness, and that is on the minds of everyone. No one wants to be part of the losing team, and this applies across the board, not just for for banking black. Um, if you tell a black person. Hey, you know, go to a black owned bank. They're probably right right away in, in their mind. They're going to say, oh, is there some type of deficiency there? Is there some type of lack? And that is because of the stigma that's been put on blackness. So, you know, um, you know, we talked about pulling one up by their own bootstraps. I, you know, uh, it, it's a lot of factors that play on why people don't want to be associated with something that is black owned or black run um, or is targeting Black people uh, in their success and their upliftment. And that is the stigma. Everything Black has always been put a bad stigma. It's in our cartooning. It's in TV. It's in everything. There's the boogeyman. Everything's Black. And so this is a stigma that's been put on Blackness overall that really does a really daunting thing on uh, any market, uh, not alone banking, to be able to strive ahead. That's a good segue into my next question. In your experience with Bank Black USA as an African-American, your friends and family, yeah. how has the lack of financial services and the ability to access banking affected Black America's relationship to money? And you can speak both personally and, and generally if you want. Yeah. yeah. 
Mark, that's, uh, I think that's at the core. Having fair and equal access, essentially freedom, is at the core of an individual's ability to succeed. And so to be able to grapple with why we want to restrict as a nation, why we restricted certain groups from being able to, you know, be economically sound is, is something that we have to deal with because it's the truth. It happened. Okay. But the legacy effect of that and where we're at now, fortunately, my parents growing up, uh, they were rather civically engaged. Um, I went to vote with my mom and my dad sometimes. And, uh, you know, they told me which uh, knob uh, to pull down and uh, all of that. So uh, my parents own, own their home. Um, so I was fortunate. Um, was I taught the process of owning a home? Uh, I would say no. Uh, was I taught uh, banking and credit worthiness? Uh, no. Um, and so this relationship with money, this know-how, if you will, is not, these conversations are not had in, uh, and I can't speak for the entire Black community. I don't propose to do so. So a lot of what I'm talking about comes from personal anecdotal uh, testimony and, and experience. But I would say uh, I would be able to speak to the people who are closest to me. And a lot of us were not taught, you know, these conversations about economics and finance and how to buy a home. It was not taught in the home. And I would say the cause of that is because um, certainly maybe their parents never owned their home and they're renting and their parents' parents didn't have access and they were renting. And so the people who you're close to, closest to, um, family, friends, you're probably going to, sometimes you have token individuals. I've been pegged to be a token many times and I uh, refuse that title. And I think all Black uh, people who have made it, quote unquote, or achieved any level of success, never accept that token frame framework. But I, I would say that uh, the access to, to money um, and the the conversations built around that is it hasn't been there for for certain groups. And so friends and family, the lack of financial services, the lack of uh, understanding uh, the power of their consumer dollar and access to banking, it's the relationship with money is let me get it as quick as I can and let me spend it because I earned it. And of course, we're talking about time preference here, right? I earned it. I worked hard. It's so hard to come by. Uh, I'm going to spend it as quickly as I can because um, uh, you know I worked hard. And so the projection on what is valuable to be able to store something um, for someone who's had lack of access for so long to an economic system, to finance, to financial literacy is not there. It's just the understanding of storing value over time is not there. And so I would say that uh, from my experience uh, and for others who look like me and who have been in my community, in my space or around me, we all kind of think alike. And so you know, you see someone getting ahead and in, in, in striving by any means necessary. They're getting fancy cars. They're getting fancy clothes. We strive for that. We spend a lot of money, a lot of attention on that, not only in the Black community, but in, in other communities as well. And that becomes what becomes uh, valuable to us. And we know that it's not. And so we're hoodwinked. And so the association uh, and the relationship to money, I would say, in the Black community has been a, a, a slow start. Uh, the literacy is a sl very, very slow start. Um, we've been uh, excluded um, systematically in so many different areas that that relationship and understanding of money, how it works, um, is the ongoing lesson. So Bank Black USA, uh, what we've done, you know, we're trying to work with colleges and university uh, uh, to the like of um, North Carolina State University, Michigan State University, 
um, to build out interactive maps, uh, University of Kansas. We've worked with many schools, scholarly research being done to build out a, a dashboard on our website to help people understand the products that are there because everything is, is circled around education, Mark. Everything has to be focused on educating people to get a deeper understanding. And so that's what we've been doing. That's what I'm passionate about. And so that people could uh, do better. Once people know better, they tend to do better for the most part, once they see the value. And so hopefully that explains some of the relationship to money in the, in the Black community and others. Um, hopefully that, that, that gave some insight as to um, what that relationship looks like. It did. Thank you. So moving into Bitcoin, I actually want to linger a little bit on your relationship to money and to get a better understanding of how Bitcoin mapped onto your political position, your values when you first learned about it. Yeah. Did it change over time? So my relationship with, with politics is, um, is a mixed bag, and I'll tell you why. So I've been somewhat civically engaged. I would say probably more than uh, most uh, president of my local block association, or my local community board former VP of my civic local civic association. Um, I sit on the board now. And so my understanding of how government, local government particularly, because we know all politics are local, is I think is a, is a, a pretty robust one, robust enough to understand what's going on and, and to be in the know. But what I do know is that there are a lot of labels uh, in the political space that don't hold true. And so people want to identify. They want to identify with something. And so, so often they need a name. They need a, a, a name, which is a signal to something so that people can identify. But the elites, the executives, the people that are higher ups, that are leaders of the, these parties and, and leaders of these labels, essentially, what they do is a bait switch. It's like you catch people with something and then you switch it to mean something very different. And they pit us against each other with these labels. And I think labels are, are somewhat bad. And so for me, being progressive and me moving into understanding what Bitcoin is and these political ideologies is really freedom. What it comes down for me is understanding and having and establishing a, a value system that's based in equal opportunity for all and a deep understanding of education and what has happened. And so I know there are a couple of things that fall true for you, Mark, that hold true for me, that hold true for everyone, no matter where you fall in the political spectrum. And that is this. No matter who you are, I know you want equal access to a good education for your children. I know you want that. I know you want access to healthy food in your community and clean water. I know you want that. I know you want safe passage from school to work, from uh, work to school, uh, wherever you come from. I know you want to feel safe in your community and safe in your space. Everybody wants these things. How can we get there? We can get there by committing to a process of truth and reconciliation. We can get there by acknowledging that there's some things that have happened where people were excluded, and uh, how can we create something, innovate something that will be better? Um, and I think we have that now through Bitcoin. But for me, uh, when I'm under this label of progressive, I want to acknowledge that I'm, I acknowledge what has happened in the past. I acknowledge that you know there's a lot of dog whistle, a lot of rhetoric that doesn't hold true, that doesn't translate all the way down to the everyday person. And I consider myself a working poor, working middle class, whatever you call it, poor person trying to just stay alive. And I recognize now that there's something better. I want to progress past what hasn't worked for so long for so many. And that uh, now that there is something better, better, not better for me, better for you, better for all humanity. And it levels the playing field and instead he's the goalpost. And I think that um, if we would all press for that, 
but all acknowledge what has happened, I think we'd have better ad- ad- adoption of this new technology and uh, people will come into it. But, um, you know, I can talk a little bit more about the policies and, and, and the policymakers, uh, incumbent legislators that are in place that uh, and what they're faced with. I could talk about a little bit about my mindset on uh, what they're what those folks are, are having to grapple with in order to get this technology out in, into the hands of people who could best use it. Um, that's a whole other conversation, probably. But if, if, if you're willing to go there, Mark, I'm willing to I'm willing to attack that, too. Specifically about Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, you know, people in, in, in government. What they're trying to do is protect government, right? You know, and so they have a, an obligation as representative-style government, which we have a, a republic, um, whereby we use this democracy to work. What we have, um, they're trying to protect government, and, and rightfully so. The, you know, the economy collapsing, uh, a lot of things would get a lot really bad before they got good again. So they're 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 faced with doing that. But then on the other hand, we have Bitcoiners, and we have people who care about the freedom of the individual, self-sovereignty, the ability to own with no intermediaries, without being censored, uh, you know, without someone having, being able to infringe on that. So Bitcoiners don't really are particularly, they're not concerned with the falling of the government, some to maybe to certain different varying degrees. So there's a big difference there. Um, but again, people in government, they're like, I don't care what, uh, I don't care about Bitcoin. I don't care if Bitcoin uh, uh, succeeds. Uh, I'm put here to make sure that the government succeeds. And so the, this difference in, in in value, I guess, is is causing a lot of people to um, in government to be a proponent of, you know, their brand. If their brand is and even if they own Bitcoin, if their brand is that I'm a left liberal, uh, whatever, then they got to brand themselves as such and talk bad about something that will compromise or go against that, which is, which is, um, it's like uh, shooting yourself in the foot. You know, something is good, but because you got to represent something, you're not going to, you know, offer that or try to push for something that might do good for all. It's, it's, it's a really a poor system. Um, I think, um, especially under the mask that we are in this representative style government, that's supposed to represent the interests of the constituent uh, of the individual. It's really a bait and switch. It's, it's, it's a terrible thing. That's why there's so much deep disenfranchisement in the black community, I think, in other communities. Um, They don't trust. How do you trust something that for so long hasn't worked for you, number one, and for which there is no proof? Oh, yeah, this is good. It's going to work. It's going to work. But yet, you know, your lived experiences every day, it's not working. So um, there's there's a lot going on there, Mark. A ton of stuff that we could uh, dive into. Absolutely. That's a very important point and uh, brings me to why you think Bitcoin is part of the plan for financial freedom for Black America. What is it that Bitcoin offers that you don't see available elsewhere? Yeah, yeah. This is this is an important point that I think um, people who understand Bitcoin um, really stand on and those who do not uh, need to really start really taking hold of. The value proposition, and I'm not talking value in the U.S. dollars, the value proposition in Bitcoin is uh, the fact that we can own something that no one could take away and that we could uh, that can scale across time and space. For example, if you own prime real estate in Manhattan, downtown Manhattan in the 1920s, right, you, you would understand that that's very valuable and you would hold on to it till now. You would never give it up. Um, but then again, with that, you would have you would have taxes to pay. You have the government uh, regulation on what you have to do. You have upkeep on the building or, or on the real estate itself. Um, with Bitcoin, you have uh, ownership of something, property, that no one could touch. 
The government can't tax you. In essence, if, if, you, if you sell it, there's a capital gains that you have to pay on that, which is, in my opinion, good because it further validates that Bitcoin is property. But we'll talk, maybe we can delve into that later. But Bitcoin is pristine Manhattan property that you could take with you across the globe, chop it up to a, and scale it down to very small increments and send it to wherever you want without anyone touching it. And the value in that is tremendous because those listeners who don't know, people don't have access to property in some places. They don't have access to store value in, in certain places. And that ability to empower the individual is a life-changing event. It may not be for you or it may not be for us in first world spaces, but the value to that of someone who is unbanked, the value to that to someone whose uh, uh, currency, the monetary uh, uh, currency is being hyperinflated, um, to be able to store something that's stable is life-changing. And so we are so privileged here in first world places that we don't understand what it is for um, someone to have currency being hyperinflated, currency that, uh, you know, the government will say, uh, bring these de uh, denominations of, of currency into our bank by 12 o'clock tomorrow or, or else, you know, you lose it or your bank account's frozen can't get access. You're running some type of campaign. You're doing some nonprofit work or something, and the government doesn't agree with it, and they they shut down your bank account. This is the type of control that is in our legacy banking system. You know, we can go on and on. Legacy payment rails, uh, the Western unions of the world, tremendous off the top fees there. We're talking five to seven, 10 day settlements. We're talking global remittance payments, settling instantly at fractions of the penny. This is tremendous technology offered to people who um, are sending remittance payments back home. This is tremendous. It's a, it's a game changer. So this is very important. Have you heard any specific concerns or critiques of Bitcoin that come specifically from uh, the Black community? Great question. Um, it's, it's tough. And I know I, I cannot be, again, I've said it before, I, I can't be the the spokesperson for the Black community. But what I can do is I can be a spokesperson for common lived experiences in the Black community. That I can be a spokesperson for because those things are relative. Those things are unique and dynamic. Some of the sentiments, um, again, are distrust. Um, we don't trust it. People who, have, who are hard to come by their money and they finally get some, Mark, they are not going to be so quick to trust something so different uh, that they don't even have a really good understanding of. And so what I can say, it's, it's particularly challenging or uniquely challenging, I would say, better language there, to try to orange pill or try to get someone who just came into some money uh, to try something new that's quote unquote better. That's a particular uh, conversation to have. Disenfranchisement runs very deep in the Black community, reasonably so, for many of the reasons that we talked about here today. And so whether you have some type of political position and value that you had when you first learned about Bitcoin and, and how that mapped differently and how that changed over time and how your perspective changed over time, that is different for everyone. And it's particularly different for Black folks, um, persons of color. I don't like that term, but I'll use it here because um, it's helpful that uh, to understand that the lack of financial literacy um, runs common to certain groups. Um, I particularly work laser being focused on the African black community, descendants of slaves. Why? Because that's what I feel most uh, empowered or most able to do work in. And so, yes, uh, there's tremendous disenfranchisement, um, but people are trying to adopt. People are, there's, there's tons of, of noise in the space. 
I do my best to help people have a healthy understanding of, of what Bitcoin is as the gold standard, if you will, of, of crypto assets. But, um, you know, it's it's a challenge in the Bach community because there's so much noise people, talking about all these altcoins and other three letter. Uh, I don't even like saying that three letter uh, thing that's art in the crypto in the in the digital space because it's it's such a distraction. I'm not saying it's not good. Uh, you know, there's so many people, ad, uh, activists doing tremendous work in the space. Uh, athletes, uh, John Carlos and, and Tommy, uh, Tommy Smith, 1968. Mexico City uh, uh, Olympics. They won the uh, first place there. Um, th- he's got a project out that's awesome. Um, so I, c- I can respect what's trying to be done here, but there's so much noise. And if if we would do better at trying to give people real financial literacy, um, it would be, I think it would be more beneficial. You know, again, my understanding of Bitcoin, it started out as a curiosity about this internet thing, uh, internet uh, money, and then it rolled quickly into... Um, understanding uh, economics better. Is trust then one of the elements by which you talk about Bitcoin with members of your community? Do you say this is a trustless protocol where you don't have to worry about the things that you used to with other traditional banking systems? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, trust is, is, a, is a fleeting thing um, amongst myself. I don't, I, I don't in my, even in my profession, I don't trust until I go to a fire with you. Uh, you're a nice guy or gal, but I don't, I can't trust you with my life until I know how you act under certain situations. So trust is just to preface what I'm saying. I do talk about trust a lot. Trust is is difficult, especially when you've been told something works here, but uh, it just, it just does not work. And especially over generation, over time, it, it just hasn't been working. And the, the effects of that are so clear. So I talk about trust, you know, you know, Bitcoin is talking about don't trust verify so much. And I, I I get into that. Hey, you don't have to trust anyone. But again, when you've been programmed to, to get something and uh, spend it quickly because you worked hard and you deserve it and uh, get it as quickly as you can because life is short. Um, when you are plagued with these type of, with this mindset and these type of philosophies, it's going to hurt everyone. And particularly it's going to hurt Black folks because we're we're already starting so far behind as far as wealth accumulation, as far as value accumulation. Um, this is different from the spending power. I mean, I mean, again, this is not these are not my stats. This is you know, it's been verified and just tons of stats out there. We spend a lot of money. We just don't spend it, uh, you know, amongst uh, in, in 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 our own communities, whereby it, it kind of circulates again. And there have been, I mean, the Black Wall Street affectionately known as Black Wall Street, which we know as the Greenwood section of Tulsa, Oklahoma. We know that as a thriving Black community um, where there was doctors, supermarkets, attorneys, uh, everything was there that was uprooted by a a terrorist attack um, by the KKK and supporters, uh, burned to the ground. Uh, And Tulsa was not the only uh, town. So again, um, I talk about trust a lot. But um, when you know that you're going to be derailed, possibly derailed by, by something that is so powerful, uh, you want to get money accumulated fast and spend it on things that are, are, are not um, really holding any true value. And again, I don't want to broad stroke the, the Black community. I want to be very sensitive to the fact that there are people who are very knowledgeable and, and, and do well in the, with their finances. I, I like to believe I'm one of them. I'm still learning. But, um, you know, there are unique uh, challenges to every group. 
And, um, you know, I'm doing my best to educate folks to help them uh, be more financially prudent, uh, financially uh, conservative and help uh, change people's time preference. Because Bitcoin, what it does is or a better monetary policy, a monetary system, it changes time preference, it changes behavior. And so that's that's important. It's something I do talk about. Trust is something I do talk about. Um, but Bitcoin is a little bit technical. And if you don't have it, um, that that's also somewhat of a, a, a challenge, too. One of the things that I've been seeing uh, counteract this discussion with regard to how Bitcoin can help uh, more marginalized communities is a pushback against Bitcoin. Often crypto is used. I don't want to get into a debate about crypto versus Bitcoin. Mm-hmm, yeah. But even here re- recently in the New York Times, Paul Krugman says that Bitcoin crypto is being sold to the most vulnerable, right? Crypto is taking advantage of the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I find this to be incredibly paternalistic, especially when few alternatives are offered, let alone an understanding of the historical framework by which we're, we're looking at these things. How do you respond to this tendency towards, we know what is best for you within the Black community? Very pervasive, insidious. Great question, Mark. Uh, you've um, uh, done a good job of, uh, of toning in to, uh, uh, to these signals. And calling them out. And I think that's important. I, I think everyone out there on these mainstream media outlets, there's always agenda. I don't watch the news because I know what's out there. I, I know what the motive is. It's all controlled. And uh, so I have a healthy suspicion of, of many agency, uh, media being one of them. How do I respond to that? How do I answer to it? Um, I tell people, be a critical thinker, be an independent critical thinker. People have to do their own research. How I feel about it is a different is, is a different. Uh, thought process. Um, I feel that it, it does no good for anyone, you know, let alone the, the Black community. You know, people telling you what is good for you. People have to come into what they value in their own time. Um, I could tell people about Bitcoin all day long, people that look like me all day long, until they grapple and understand um, what it is from a technology perspective and then how that could affect their life. They're not going to change behavior. They're just not. That goes for any human being. But there are particular uh, barriers to understanding. And I'm not talking about cognitive understanding. I'm just talking about people, just, they understand things differently based upon access to education, you know, time and place. There's a lot of different things. And so I'm familiar with what goes on in the Black community because I'm a part of it. And so um, I, I feel best I can serve and help people in, in down that vein. But, you know, I, I think it's terrible when you know, people make these assertions publicly. They got big platforms. They talk about things that they really know nothing about. I mean, this thing that uh, just the other day, uh, USA Today did something talking about inclusivity in crypto and that, and they hosting this Twitter space talking about this. And, and they talk about things and you got all one group of people up there that probably um, wouldn't be the best suited to have that conversation. So um, it's disappointing. I feel it's counterproductive and it, it just doesn't do any good um, for, for people overall. So it's, it's a great question. It's, it's something I think we could do better on. But again, it's not going to be done, in my opinion, through these people who have these platforms on mainstream media outlets that have these uh, agendas. But people have to really be able to discern that. Um, people have to get to the point where they recognize uh, what's going on. And, and get so sick and tired of it that they um, they explore different options. They 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 go for the alternate, and um, 
Bitcoin is an alternative. Uh, banking black is an alternative. And understanding the, uh, what's going on is, is important to understand. My last couple of questions for you, John. What is your dream for both black banks in America as well as Bitcoin and black America? My dream for black banks, my dream for Bitcoin here in, in, in America is, is very simple. I want people to be able to have a alternative to something that is not working. It's unfortunate that we have to choose an alternative, but having options is, is critical. So for example, Black-owned banks, they exist to provide people with options, an alternative to something that hasn't worked. I believe that that's essential for people to have an economic base so that they could enter into an economic system. And my wish is that people explore their options. Just because you have mainstream banks, the big four, Chase, Wells Fargo, Citibank, uh, Bank of America, just because that's easily accessible to you doesn't mean that the financial fitness of that institution is best serving you. A lot of these mainstream banks, they're investing in the Dakota Access Pipeline. They're investing in private prisons. And so it's counterproductive to you as an individual um, the African-American, the African, the descendant of a slave, to invest and put your money into something, essentially lending the bank your money. And they are taking those same dollars and using it against you. On top of that, the Community Reinvestment Act, federal policy, a report card, if you will, for these institutions, a lot, many of them are failing that. They're failing their report cards. They're failing their responsibility to the local communities in which they exist. So my wish is that people start Banking local, banking black, putting their money in institutions that are willing to lend to them. And people in the Bitcoin space are are they're they're arriving right now. They're you know they're listening to this podcast and they're upset that I'm I'm talking about banks as an option for an individual. But banking has its place. Central banking has its place. It serves a purpose, and we're in a fiat world right now, so we have to understand the purpose that these banks serve. And understand that the economic system and the policies, the monetary policies in which these central banks exist is not squared off for everyone. It's not equal opportunity for everyone. And so I want people, um, particularly Black folks, to be able to express their alternative in putting money into Black banks. When it comes to Bitcoin, I want people who are financially literate and understand their alternatives, understand what's really going on with government deficit spending and inflation and understanding what we know as the Cantheon effect and, and how inflation affects different, different assets differently at different times. And the people who have access to this money um, that flows into the system, flows into the economy, the people who get it first are often the ones that don't, don't need it the most. And, and I, I need them to understand uh, that. Maybe not so much on a real deep level, because they already feel it. They already feel that when they go try to strive to buy a home after they get out of college, that asset is already 2X, 3X, 4X, 5X up, and they can't get it because they just don't have the funds to get it. I need people to understand that and understand that if they were more financially uh, conservative, that they would ha- be able to store value in, in, in Bitcoin. I need people to understand to get out of this fiat mindset and the only value that you have is in storing and saving this money. Saving money has become somewhat of a religion here in, 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 in the U.S. And so money is meant to be spent. And to understand how you can leverage debt or leverage your asset, uh, home ownership, you can leverage it to, to buy more assets. It's been said, I forget by who, that rich people buy assets, poor people look to make more income, acquire more money, 
And so we have to get people to understand that more and understand that Bitcoin is a wonderful opportunity. It's a wonderful uh, alternative. And I want people to, to really get that because it, it is life-changing. And um, unfortunately, due to, you know, um, well, fortunately or unfortunately, however you look at it, I, I work in the death and destruction business. And I meet people every day of their life on the worst day of their life. And I'm put in a position to try to make that better. And so, you know, I'm not trying to virtue signal here to say I'm a good guy, but I'm just trying to let people understand my position of where I'm coming from. So I appreciate you allowing me to do that here. I'm trying to get people to understand that there's limited space and time that you have. And the best, in my opinion, the best way you could try to serve and do that time uh, uh, justice is to making the spaces in which you exist better than the way how you found it. And so uh, making the world a better place it really is not a macro thing. It's where you exist right here and right now. It's, it's this podcast in which you're listening to. It's the podcast that you're going to, sh- this, this podcast, Mark, your podcast that is going to be shared out. And it's going to, it's going to make someone listening say, you know what? Wow. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you just had that influence, even if it's just one person. And so I want people to adopt um, Bitcoin in a way that will help them be empowered uh, from an empowered perspective. And that is truly life-changing for me. So um, that was a great question. And I appreciate it on many levels, Mara. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to make you dwell on something a little bit longer here. You mentioned that you're in the death and destruction business. You're a firefighter. Yeah. What has been the impact of that over 20 years? How do you not only cope with that, but how do you take those lessons, those vulnerabilities that you see in others on their worst day of their lives? How has that changed your life? And how do you try to impart some type of lesson in all of that for others? It's funny. Um, There's a lot. It's funny being in a space at a car accident. I'll just take that. It's a car wreck. Um, You get there, you show up, the person is wrapped around a pole, they're wrapped into another car, they're underneath a a flatbed, Uh, they're dying. Bones are sticking out everywhere, people are bleeding. And uh, you're in a time and a space uh, right there and then, and no one else knows what's going on. That person's family, they think that they're coming home. Uh, They're not. Um, Their cell phone could be ringing. I've seen it on the floor of the car. Uh, Mom or dad, it's ringing. Uh, they don't realize that person is never coming home. It's like you're in the twilight zone. And so for me, what that has done to my psyche, what it has done for me is that it, it helps me understand that you have but so much time and time is fragile uh, and everyone is the same. It helps me look at the deep down into the humanity of the individual. And it helps me understand that we all want the same thing. We all want life. We all want to be able to live uh, without being pressed and feeling feeling hopeless. And so uh, for me, that is, it it shapes my outlook on everything that I do. Uh, And so again, not virtual signaling here, but um, when you have experiences like this, and this is what you've been doing from your 23 years old kid uh, until 20 plus years later, that shapes you, it shapes your whole world. It shapes everything. Uh, You see everyone as, as being very fragile. So how does that work, my philosophy on, on, on how I move forward. It's like, I realized that not only is time is precious, but everyone um, really is, is susceptible to the same things. When is your time coming? Uh, and so uh, when will you be pressed? 
And uh, will you then step back and, and, and ally with someone else who has experienced that before you? And will you help and partner with them to, to, so that they are not pressed going forward? Everyone is going to get to a point where they're in a bad way one day. You're, you're, as, as we say, um, you know, you'll have your moment one day where you'll be humbled tremendously. You'll be pressed. And we're feeling it here in, in New York City with politics, with what's going on, with um, this global health crisis. People are being forced to do things that they feel that is not right. And uh, it's pressing people, making people feel away. And people are marching and protesting. And, I, and, and let me tell you something. Uh, nothing brings people and unifies people better than a good uh, uh, oppression. Uh, nothing brings people together uh, like a good day of, of reckoning when they feel that uh, their freedoms are taken away. And so it's good for humanity, I believe, um, even though I, it's terrible to see people die, uh, be sick with this thing. Um, it's terrible because I've seen it differently than other people. Uh, seeing people uh, maybe in a 24-hour period in a shift, seeing maybe one CPR call going to seven, eight, nine, ten 10, where we're doing 10 CPR calls in, in a 24-hour period. Something is out here hurting people. And so uh, I say all that to say, and hopefully I've, I've answered the, the question or brought it, uh, done, done it some justice. All my experiences have come to um, help me um, realize that we have limited time um, to do good, limited time to help people understand that there's a better way and uh, limited time to help people uh, to work together to um, to make sure that other people uh, are, are better off. And so um, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing, this innovation, um, but we have to make sure that we're very sensitive to the thoughts of, of others and in, in the circumstances of others. And I know that's not a really popular thing to do. People uh, are just so much divisiveness. And um, I think hope, hope, I'm, I'm, I'm hopelessly hopeful that um, we'll be able to uh, get together um, on many different levels across many different spectrums and, and see each other eye to eye and have courageous conversation. And Mark, you're, you're, you're doing it. And I, I commend you for that. I thank you for, for what you're doing. And uh, kudos to you for all that you're doing, man. I, I appreciate you very much. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being so candid with your experiences. My last question for you, John, is what gives you hope? What gives me hope is um, uh, uh, kind of what I just alluded to is that there are people who are willing to have courageous conversations. I often say I love to sit down with people who think vastly different than, uh, than me. Uh, there are people who want to engage and have uh, civil discourse. There are people that 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 want to respectfully engage and have intellectual exchange, dialogue. And so uh, when I do that, that gives me hope. It's almost like therapy, really, when you get an opportunity to actually sit with people eye to eye and engage and see uh, what their perspective, where they've come from. Once I learn that, that gives me hope. Once I see, ah, that's why you think that way. Um, that's why you have that uh, value system. That's why politically you, 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 you're principled in, in, in that way. And so Courageous Conversations gives me hope. People willing to put themselves in other people's shoes gives me hope, even though that doesn't happen too often. That gives me hope. And people who make themselves vulnerable, vulnerability gives me hope. When someone is willing to be uncomfortable and vulnerable to do something that puts them at risk, that gives me hope. That truly inspires me. It gives me hope that people get it. People uh, see humanity in, in, in others. 
And uh, th- that's the thing. These are the things that I like to focus on. Um, th- these are the things that I'm unapologetic about. Um, these are the things that I'm not afraid of, of getting um, reprimand for or being retaliated against uh, uh, at that, because now I can position myself and speak more peace and speak more calm. And, and then they feel uh, hopefully I disarm them with that. A lot of these things, of course, are kind of like uh, spiritual um, uh, reckonings, tools, but um, I don't want to go there. But uh, yeah, that's what gives me hope. The ability to have courageous conversations, the ability to uh, see someone else's humanity and see that other people are willing to be vulnerable so that um, uh, we could come together uh, and uplift each other, uplift humanity. Perfect. Thank you so much, John. Please tell the listeners where they can find you as well as the projects that you're working on. Thanks. Um, yeah, you can find me personally and so a lot of the work that I'm doing on Twitter. My Twitter handle is John Logan, J-O-N-L-O-G-A-N, spelled backwards. Um, pretty simple. John, J-O-N-L-O-G-A-N, spelled backwards. And uh, there in my profile, you can see some of the stuff. You can see the link to uh, bankblackusa.org. And you can find all the work that we're doing right there and uh, reach out to us, go to the contact us page, you know, look to engage. Everything that we're doing is done in a real collaborative, inclusive way. So I'm looking forward to uh, interacting and doing some more work in a real collaborative way going forward. Lastly, recommend two books on the history of black banks uh, for our listeners. Sure. Yeah. Um, Not so much black uh, banks, but uh, I mentioned it earlier. Um, Go check out Mr. Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law. Color of Law, you know, Richard Rothstein. And I would say another book that I would probably recommend. Um, that's a good question. You stumped me with that one, Mark. I will uh, recommend The Color of Money. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. I've heard of that. I haven't read that one. But yeah, that's probably going to be a really good read as well. And there's also The History of the Black Dollar by uh, Angel Rich, uh, which is good as well. And I'll link those in the show notes. So John, thank you so much. This was fantastic. I really appreciate your time and all that you're you're doing on the front lines. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. Absolutely.